One of the unique uh, vantage points that missionaries get is they're gone for four years and they come back and you notice certain things that have changed. Uh, I'll never forget, we came back, uh, I think it was the 2000, and we were flying across the Atlantic. We landed in Washington, D.C., and as soon as we got off the plane, went through the, the skyway, we noticed that everybody reached into their pocket and they pulled out a cell phone and they started calling somebody. And I looked at my wife and I said, was I sleeping when they passed those out? I didn't get one of those. <laughs> it was that same year we were here in Dallas and we were staying with the doulas as we are uh, this time. And uh, Debbie said to, to us, well, why don't you take my cell phone? That way if you're out in town, you would be able to, if we'd be able to call you or you'd be able to call us. And we were like, oh. Got one now, you know, as I <laughs> got this off. It was great until it rang. <laughs> Nobody told us about the green button on the, the cell phone. So it was ringing, and we are like, hello? And it was like still ringing, and hello? Oh, no, now we've broken Debbie's phone. <laughs> well, things change. We notice other changes. Uh, people are using different vocabulary sometimes when we come back, and... Uh, dietary things are, have changed and uh, there's different, uh, different trends, you notice. This time, as we have come back, we've noticed a trend of a more serious nature. As we have talked with people, watched the news, read the news online, We've noticed that there is a sense of loss amongst God's people. There's a feeling of we have lost our position, uh, in a sense, in society. That uh, if we were once, as believers, considered a perceived uh, majority, we have lost that position. And there seems to be a greater hostility towards uh, those who call themselves the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Ekman, who is the former president of Grace University in Omaha, wrote, In the U.S., a huge political and social shift has taken place. The evangelical influence is conspicuously waning. During the 1980s and 1990s, evangelicals helped set the cultural agenda no longer. The pluralistic and secular nature of American culture is taking its toll, especially among the emerging adults age 18 to 30. And we sense that. People sense that there something has changed in American society. The famous uh, Christian neurosurgeon Ben Carson has observed this shift. He said, People don't want to talk about God, and don't you ever mention Jesus Christ. And this is supposed to be a country where we have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. There's a sense in which we are losing some of our religious freedoms. Um, if we once had a position of respect in society, more and more those who follow Jesus are being characterized as being narrow-minded, intolerant, outdated, unenlightened. Someone else is setting the agenda, and if we don't fall in line, we're marginalized. And so I sense that there's a fear that we're losing our relevance, we're losing our influence. And I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if maybe, just maybe, the church in America is now joining the rest of the church around the world, and I wonder if this isn't the church's finest hour, an hour when we, more than ever, the world needs a church, holy, mature, 
who loves God and loves her neighbor. Mark Galley wrote a book called uh, Chaos and Grace. And I was very challenged by this book. You know, we often are, are disturbed when our, our peace, our comfort is disrupted. But he says, you know, in actual fact, uh, God doesn't merely give us a faith of comfort and encouragement. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And he says the Holy Spirit is the most unsettling gift imaginable. For this is the gift that can bring both chaos and grace. He writes, We've forgotten the God of the Bible, the untamable, unruly, mysterious spirit who regularly upsets our plans and, yes, sometimes creates havoc in our lives. If you think about the history, the biblical history, and many of the major characters in the Bible, is it not true that many of them had their lives disrupted? just at the time that God was going to was making a major change and a major shift. You think of Noah, Abraham, Moses. You think of uh, Mary and Joseph. Think of the shift that happened in their life right before the birth of the Savior. Think of the, the people in the book of Acts, the believers in the book of Acts, and Saul, uh, the shift that took place in his life right before God called him into the ministry. So maybe, just maybe, as we see things shifting and our realities changing, God is preparing us for our finest hour as we witness in a world that's becoming, growing increasingly more hostile towards our faith in Jesus Christ. In actual fact, Jesus warned us. He prepared us for this. He knew this was coming. I once saw a cartoon of a pastor who who was about to take the pulpit. And right before he stood up to speak, he leaned over to a deacon and he said, Do I tell him the truth or do I keep him comfortable? And uh, when Jesus taught, he always told the truth. He didn't merely keep his disciples comfortable. So we come to our text. Verse 16 says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. First question we need to ask in this passage is, who is Jesus talking to? There is an immediate context. Jesus was sending out his disciples on a short-term mission trip. It was a a mission trip to the house of Israel. And they had one message. The message was, the kingdom of God is near. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's will in heaven done on earth. If we think of the kingdom of God breaking through, we think of restoration. All those things that were corrupted and touched by sin, which is everything, being restored and renewed once again so that God's will in heaven will one day be realized on earth. And as they were announcing that this kingdom is beginning to break through. God gave them special visual aids uh, to remind people of what the message was. You see, in God's original design, we were never meant we were never meant to be sick. I don't know if there's any here this morning that are feeling sick. That was not God's original purpose for you. Sickness came through sin. And so these disciples were given a special ability during this trip to heal the sick. It was never God's original intent that there would be death. And so on this trip, they were given the ability to raise people from the dead. There were debilitating diseases, 
crippling diseases like leprosy. And so they were able to heal the lepers. And there were people who were invaded by demonic evil spirits. Imagine God's perfect creation reflecting his image now invaded by evil, rebellious spirits. And the the disciples, as they were sent out, they were given the authority to cast out those evil spirits. And all of these things to, to share the message that the kingdom of God is near. It's breaking through. And as, as amazing as that trip was, how would you like to write the prayer letter for that, uh, that mission trip? Uh, as amazing as it was, it was partial. Not all the people were healed. Not all the, the, the lepers cleansed. Not everyone had been raised from the dead, and certainly not all the demons had been cast out. But it was foreshadowing the coming of the future kingdom. And so uh, these disciples went out and they were announcing the kingdom, the arrival of the kingdom. But not everything would be easy. This sounds like a missions trip I would like to be on. I would like to see these things and I would like to experience these and I would like to write home about these things. But it was not all easy because Jesus is telling them you will meet people despite what you will be able to show them they will not believe. Because miracles alone do not penetrate the hardened heart without the Spirit of God working in that heart. But more than that, he's warning them there will be opposition. There will be those who oppose you. This will not be necessarily an easy trip. So the Jesus' words here in John chapter 10 is a preparation for this mission trip. But as we look at the passage, it certainly looks like the scope goes beyond that. If you were to take the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 and set it beside your Bible as you read through the book of Acts, you would say, yep, that's what Jesus was talking about. Yes, 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 yes. So in a way, the scope telescopes beyond just this immediate context. Certainly if you looked at church history, you would see relevance to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. And as you look forward even into the future times during the tribulation, those who will be going through the tribulation as believers in Jesus Christ... Matthew chapter 10 would be very relevant and will be very relevant. But what I'd like us to see is as we face our changing world, the words of Jesus in this passage is like our roadmap to guide us through confusing and troubling times. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's a troubling statement, really. Have you ever put John chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10 together? John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I like that. I like that passage a lot. And you come to John chapter 10... And it's, or Matthew chapter 10, and it says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. And the question that comes to your mind is, what kind of shepherd in his right mind sends sheep to wolves? I did a little reading on wolves. Wolves are a terrible, terrible predator. You do not want to be hunted by wolves. They hunt in packs, and they're relentless. They will chase their prey for days trotting, sometimes as slow as five miles an hour, they'll just trot behind their prey. And they will wear them down physically, they will wear them down mentally, and they'll wait for a moment of inattention, a moment of weakness, and they'll pounce, and they will tear their prey apart. What kind of shepherd would expose his sheep to 
that kind of threat. And yet Jesus says to us, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. I remember when I was a student at seminary, Dr. Joe Aldrich from Multnomah University came and spoke to us, and he was talking on this passage, and he said, there's a difference when Jesus sends out the sheep. He says, he sends out sheep that are tough sheep. They have steel wool. (laughs) They're protected. And uh, that is the difference. He says, not only does he say, you are sheep amongst wolves, but he gives a word of counsel to his sheep. And he uses two more animals. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And really, that is the word. As you see your world changing, we don't have the position we once did. We don't have the respect that maybe we once did as followers of Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus to us is, be as shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. Snakes in biblical times is a picture of prudence, wisdom. And uh, we only have to look to Jesus as our example of what that looks like. The wolves were after Jesus. They were constantly trying to catch him. You remember when the Pharisees confronted him? What did the what was their what was the ruse? What was the plan? They were they wanted to get Jesus unwittingly to say something disparaging about the Romans. Get him in trouble with the Romans, and then the Romans would deal with him. And so they had a very clever question, one that they had thought about very carefully, very carefully crafted question. Is it right to pay taxes to the Romans? Jesus said, take out the coin. Take a look. Whose picture is on that coin? And they said, Caesar's. And give Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. It's a a brilliant answer. (laughs) Whose image is, is stamped on us? The creator. And so we give to, to the creator what belongs to the creator. He did not step into their trap. He saw it coming, and he went around it. They had nothing more to say. That's what it means to be as shrewd as snakes. Jesus saw the attacks coming. He was aware. He was not clueless. And as we move into a changing reality, we cannot be clueless. We need to know what's going on in the world. But you know there's a danger in that. We can also become jaded. We can become cynical. And uh, there's a principle that says, that has been observed, that says the longer that somebody is persecuted, the more they start to resemble the persecutor. Teachers see this on the playground all the time. The kid that's picked on, the kid that bully is bullied, later on becomes the bully. And Jesus said, no, not, not so with my disciples. Though you are as shrewd as snakes, I'm calling you to be as innocent as doves. Paul understood this. I don't know if there was a missionary more persecuted than the Apostle Paul. And you remember what he said in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. He said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. As the church of Jesus Christ proclaims the kingdom it must also remain gracious in the face of opposition and injustice. The disciples of Jesus Christ do not adopt the methods of the world. Shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. I would like to talk briefly about the four different kinds of wolves. If we are sheep amongst wolves, Jesus identifies four different kinds of wolves. 
The first one is the religious wolves. Verse 17. He says, Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. There's religious opposition to those who are the true followers of Jesus Christ. In Niger, we see this all the time in the lives of the believers. I remember when uh, a good friend of ours who had come to faith, actually on our front porch, learning to read, he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he was so excited about his new faith in Christ, and he went back to his village, and he shared uh, with his family and with the people in the village about his new love for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what happened? Nobody said anything to him, but there was a stir in the local mosque in that village. And the imams were talking amongst themselves, and they decided the best strategy to stop this this young man and his dangerous practices, their strategy was they went to his father. And they said, your son is shaming all of us. Your son is making a mockery of our village, saying that he is now a follower of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do about it? And the father, feeling the pressure from the community... He went to his son and said, Son, you have to stop this. The whole village is talking about you becoming a Christian. And he said, Father, this is, this is my life. I can't turn my back on Jesus. And so the father said, Well, then you are not my son. Uh, my son is dead to me. I won't eat with you. I won't drink tea with you. You're not my son. Painful. It would be painful in our society, but you get into a communal society, a collective society like, like uh, Niger, and certainly amongst the, the Tuareg, that was, that was awful. And he endured a lot of pain. But he persevered, and uh, eventually... When harvest time came, the father needed some help with the harvest. And so uh, suddenly his son became his son again. And he welcomed him back and said, I need help with the field. And uh, the story has a somewhat happy ending. Uh, right before the father died, I was in the village. And uh, he invited me to tell a story to the children in the village. And he said to me, he said, you and your brother... Uh, my brother Mike worked with us for 18 years as well. He said, you and your brother, I just want to thank you for all you've done for my son. He's a better son than he was before. Thank you. And we praise God for that. I wish he would have come to faith before he died, but uh, at least he had welcomed his son back. But the, our friend Riley soon had experienced the pressure and the attacks of the religious wolves. There's another kind of wolf, and I call those the political wolves. Somebody this morning during the worship service almost preached my sermon, but he talked about North Korea. Uh, we do not have um, we do not have persecution like in North Korea, but there is under the surface a subtle political persecution. Jesus lost his court case, but he accomplished his mission. Stay focused. And so we face that. There are political wolves that try to put barriers in front of the spread of the gospel. Third wolf found in verse 21 Brothers will betray brothers to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Probably one of the hardest forms of persecution, more than the political uh, forms of persecution, is when the wolves are within your own family. I'll I'll never forget, uh, we had a, a man who was uh, actually helping with the Bible translation. He was a Muslim man, 
but he, because of his language skills, he was asked to help as a language consultant for the Bible translation. And so this young man was in the Word every day. And uh, never kid yourself about the Word of God. It changes people, even people who are not open to being changed. And uh, this guy, because he worked with the translators every day, he knew the Scriptures. Christians would sometimes come to him if they had a, a Bible question because they knew he knew the Word. And sometimes he'd be sitting around the, the teapot at night and the old man would be saying, oh, those Christians, they believe this and they believe that. And he'd say, hang on, hang on. That's not actually what they believe. In their scriptures, it says this, this, this. And so it was amazing. And we sensed that the Lord was speaking to his heart, but there was a tremendous barrier in the sense of his family. Uh, to be Tuareg, to be Tamajic, is to be Muslim. And you do not change that. And so one, one night, uh, he came to one of the elders of our church and said, is there somebody I can talk to about the Christian faith? And uh, the elder very wisely, I would have never done this, but the elder very wisely said, you know what, Mahmoudin, you don't need to. You don't need to talk to anybody. You know what the Bible says. You just need to make your decision. And he said, you're right. He said, but pray for me. It's going to be hard. He says, especially my wife. She will not understand this. Well, he, two weeks later, he came forward and said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He told his wife, and she was furious. She said to him, you can go to hell, but you're not taking me with you. And he felt that distance. But he stood his ground, and over time, the wife had a problem because suddenly her husband was a better husband than he had ever been before. <laughs> and what is she supposed to do with that? And she was, this, she was put in a, a position of confusion. And so finally, not knowing what to do, she just prayed one night, Lord, God, if, if I'm supposed to follow the way of Muhammad, give me a dream about Muhammad. But if I'm supposed to follow this Jesus with my husband, then please give me a dream about Jesus. That night, the Lord gave her a dream about Jesus. She was in a white Hilux pickup truck, and uh, it went off the road into the ditch, and it rolled, and she tried to get out of that truck in every way, and she couldn't, and suddenly a man dressed in white came and just touched the door, and the door opened, and she was able to get out. And she looked into the face of that man and she said, I knew it was Jesus. And she gave her life to Jesus. And I would say between her and her husband today, she's the one with the strongest faith. She has a faith that's unshakable. But it's very painful when the wolves come from within the family. The fourth wolf is what I would call society wolves. When the wolves are in our culture, they are in our context. Look at verse 22. It says, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. All men, I don't, Jesus doesn't mean all men. He means all sorts of men from every walk of life will hate you because of me. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I would say probably that is the kind of persecution that we're facing here in this country. More and more, those who call on the name of Jesus Christ are looked down on and marginalized as being ignorant and intolerant. I've been, as my children approached the teen years, I became very interested in uh, what's called the lockbox theory. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but a lockbox, this is what happens when young people leave their Christian home and they go off to university. Suddenly they're put into a context where their faith, their values, what they grew up with, what they have been taught by their parents is in direct conflict with their new environment. And the values they grew up with are conflicting with the values that they're being taught in university. 
And so what happens is the young person never once has any intention of abandoning his or her faith. But they take their their faith and they put it in a lockbox, in a safe for safekeeping. Just to put it aside for the time being while they work out their new identity. But you know what the danger is. Faith has to grow with you. And if it doesn't grow with you, someday you go back to that lockbox and you open up uh, and you look at where your faith is and you suddenly realize it no longer represents who you are because it didn't grow with you. And so while many young people in this country today who grew up in Christian homes never had any attention of abandoning their faith are finding that suddenly their faith seems irrelevant and no longer a part of who they are. That is the pressure that society is placing on our young people. And we need to pray for them, that they would stand firm and in the face of the wolves. It's interesting that if you sense your, your, your context becoming more and more hostile to your faith, be encouraged by one thing. It means they're taking it seriously. I like what uh, one of the professors at the Patrick Henry College said. It's uh, Dr. Gene Veith. He made this comment. No one can violently attack something without taking it seriously in some way. No one attacks belief in Zeus anymore, for example. No one gets emotional over the Flat Earth Society. Yet Christianity calls forth the deepest emotions even and especially in those who most reject it. As we increasingly find the wolves in our society and their, their attacks becoming more and more frequent, the pressure on us is to blend, to be sheep in wolves' clothing, so to speak, to blend in. And uh, I think our young people are particularly vulnerable to these attacks. And if we are going to live as shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves, we have to confront our fears. And Jesus helps us with that in this passage. It's a wolf's world. How are we going to live as sheep in the wolf's world? The first fear we have, I see in verse 18 and 19, and I call it the fear of looking stupid. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The wolves love to put us on the spot to make us look stupid to get us tongue-tied we don't know what to say there's two encouragements I see in Jesus' teaching here the first one is he's speaking in the, in the context of being called before the courts being put on trial and I like to apply it even to all sorts of contexts where we are put on trial The first encouragement is, in verse 18, he says, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. I said at the beginning, more than ever, the world needs to see a church, holy and mature, loving God, loving its neighbor. We are being put into certain contexts as a witness. That is God's calling on our lives, and we must never forget that. And the second thing we must never forget is we are not alone. One of the things that wolves like to do is isolate a sheep and uh, make a, a sheep feel fearful. And Jesus makes it very clear, you are not alone. You have the Holy Spirit within you. In all the discussions of the, the signs of the filling of the Holy Spirit, I would say as I look through the book of Acts, One of the clearest signs of the filling of the Holy Spirit is a boldness. 
that comes to the child of God. We are not alone. He says the Spirit will give you the words to say. Now, can I just be honest with you? I believe this passage is true. I don't see it in every single instance because I have been in in circumstances where I've been put on the spot and later on I thought that could have gone better. Uh, I could have reacted better to that question or to that interaction. But what I do believe is as we walk by the Spirit over a long period of time, our lives are a witness. And the glory of the one we serve does shine through our lives. And I think we grossly underestimate that. And we sometimes run away from opportunities because we're fearful of being put on the spot. We're fearful of those uncomfortable moments that may come. But as we are faithful, our lives do serve as a witness. That's one fear we have, looking stupid. The second one is closely related to it. I see it in verse 24 to 27, and I call it the fear of insult and ridicule. Jesus said, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the member of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the roof. The Jesus was called Beelzebub, means the prince of demons. It was about the worst insult they could think of. Imagine the Messiah, the one who was, had been sent to free the world from the works of the evil one, from the works of Satan. And yet he was insulted and he was called the prince of demons. Jesus said, do you see how they treated me? Do you see how they insulted me? You're going to get it as well. You will be insulted. He said, do not, do not be afraid. And you know why? Because you've made your decision to follow me. You've made the right decision. One day, all will be revealed. Again, the, the Apostle Paul had it right on. Colossians chapter 3 said, your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. One day, everything will be laid open. And in the end, you will be vindicated. You made the right choice. You followed me. Do not, do not be intimidated by their insults or ridicule. Third fear we have, the fear of bodily harm. Maybe you don't feel that one as much here in this country, but I'll tell you just about every missionary that goes out from this body is feeling an, a, a greater danger in the context where they're working. The world is becoming increasingly uh, more and more dangerous place. We have put more time uh, in the last few years into our security planning than any other time. And this is a real concern. The scriptures say, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth far more than sparrows. You know, living in what I'm calling a perceived majority here in this country, we probably do not have as well-developed theology of risk and a theology of suffering. But many of our brothers and sisters around the world have worked on this a lot more than we have. 
And I think what Jesus gives us here in this passage is an excellent foundation for a theology of risk and a theology of suffering. You know, as I look into the scriptures, I look at the book of Acts, I see that often Jesus, or often we do avoid known risks so that we may live and witness another day. Perfect example was the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. He didn't want to leave. The elders encouraged him to. They lowered him in a basket. They got him out of the city because his life was threatened. It was an evacuation. Even in this passage, verse 23 says, When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And then it's followed by the, the next statement. It says, I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In case you're wondering about that second part, that's probably one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to interpret is what exactly Jesus was talking about there. And uh, the commentators go in about ten different directions on that verse. And I would uh, take great comfort in um, the book of John as I read through it and and, uh, how many times John says, and at that point the disciples did not understand what Jesus had said. Uh, I did not fully come to a hard conclusion about what exactly Jesus is talking about in the second part of that verse, but nor do I think it changes the thrust of this passage. But he says, uh, when you're persecuted, you flee to another place. Jesus himself in John chapter 7 knew that the Jews were trying to take his life and so he does not go through Judea. There is a place for your missionaries to avoid a known threat. But at the same time, if they are going to take the gospel to places in the world where Jesus is not known, they need to know there is risk. There is the possibility of bodily harm. And they need to be willing to accept that risk before they go. Jesus gives us two very important things to remember. And the first one is, remember the wolves do not hold the key to eternal life. They can kill this body, but there they cannot touch your eternal soul. So don't be afraid of them. Their power is limited. And the second thing says, remember your father cares deeply for you. He's watching. When I first started studying this passage, I was saying, I looked at the reference to the sparrows and I said, two sparrows are sold for a penny. That's pretty cheap. What do you do with the sparrows once you buy them? Apparently, they ate them. If you're a college student before ramen noodles, you ate sparrow because they were so inexpensive. (laughs) They were cheap, and yet not one of those sparrows falls without your Lord knowing about it. He says, the number of hairs on your head, he knows the number. Not an estimated number, he knows the number. And for some of us, that number changes (laughs) daily. But he's saying, your father is watching your life very closely. You're not abandoned. Philip Yancey in his book, uh, Disappointment with God, said when he went through his crisis of faith, he never once questioned whether God existed. That was a non-negotiable for him. He said, my crisis of faith was, does he care about my life? Is he interested in what is going on in my life? And Jesus said, your father is very interested in what is going on in your life. The wolves cannot touch your eternal soul, and they cannot touch you without my knowledge. And so we can rest in the assurance that as we go out with this message, the kingdom of God is near. We have the father's presence with us. So... In conclusion, is our world changing? Yes, it is. And some of us are are deeply feeling the sense of loss. It is not like it used to be. And it may never be like it used to be. But Jesus told us that the world would change. 
Jesus told us it would be like this. And he told us there would be opposition from religious sectors, from political sectors, from our own families, and from the society, the culture around us. But opposition doesn't mean that we are losing our influence. And in fact, the world needs the church more than ever. They need a reflection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling us to face our fears. There's an old adage that says, you never change unless staying the same is no longer an option. Well, maybe as our world is changing, staying the same is no longer an option for us. And God is bringing changes in us as his disciples because he has a special place for us. I just want to close with a couple stories that I hope are an encouragement, the first one in particular. In Niger, the church is a very small minority. It's less than 1%. And you might wonder, what kind of influence could a church so small have in a country like Niger? One Sunday, uh, we got up and we went to church. It was Election Sunday. Sometimes they have elections on Sunday over there. And uh, we noticed a number of the young men were missing from the congregation. And so um, I asked some of the leaders of the church, I said, where are these young men that are usually here? And they said, oh, you didn't know. It's Election Sunday. They have been commissioned by the local authorities to come and man the the election booths in their community. And they said the reason was it is believed in Niger that the Christians are the most have the most integrity, they're the least likely to be corrupt. And so they have the Christians manning the election booths where there are Christians available. And I think about that. I would love to see more and more examples of that. Examples of being wise, being shrewd, and yet innocent as doves. Because the Lord has placed his people in the right places to be a witness. I have another friend. His name's Muhammad. As you can guess, he's a Muslim. He's become a very close friend, I could say almost like a brother. And we have shared many experiences together, Muhammad and I. And my brother, is, my real brother as well, knows him very well. Muhammad has heard the gospel many times. He's even, the Lord even gave him a dream. One night he woke up in the middle of the night, about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. He stepped out of his house and he looked and he said, I saw you, Steve. You were sitting there right in front of my house. And uh, I said, what are you doing here? And he said to me that I had apparently said to him, Muhammad, do not follow the things of this world because they will let you down. And so when I actually did visit his house the next day, the first question out of his mouth was, were you here last night in the middle of the night? And I said, what? He said, did you come here at like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning? And were you sitting here in this chair? I said, absolutely not. I was home in bed. And he said, oh, then it was a dream. He told me what the dream was, and he said, what do you think that dream meant? And I said, I think it means the Lord is pursuing you. He's giving you an opportunity to trust in Jesus. And uh, he thought long and hard about that. Sometime later, Muhammad came to me, and he said, I have to tell, ask you something. He said, you and your brother have had a deep influence in my life but you do not understand the pressure I would be under if I followed Jesus like you do. If I followed you in your faith, you do not understand the pressure that I would be under. And so I would like to ask that we no longer talk about Jesus. And I said, Muhammad, do you realize what you're asking? Do you realize what's happening? You are allowing the society, your family, to dictate your eternity. And he said, Steve, you do not understand Already in town, they think I'm a Christian because of our friendship. He said, please, don't take me there. It was a sad moment. He was brought to the position 
or to the place of decision. And like the rich young ruler, he walked away. And from that time, we've seen Muhammad's life fall apart. His, his marriage has fallen apart, and he's married another woman. It fell apart. And, and I can say that as I look at his life, the, one of the biggest changes I see is he is definitely pursuing the things of this world. Jesus closed this passage by saying, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Peter had a, a moment of weakness. He denied the Lord three times. But Peter did not disown Jesus. Peter belonged to our Lord. Sometimes we will have moments of weakness. Sometimes we will have moments where we lose our courage. But my friend Muhammad, to this point, he has disowned Jesus before men. And the Lord Jesus says, and I will disown him before my Father in heaven. We have been called at this point in, our, in, in history, as God is bringing this history to a conclusion, he's called us to be his witnesses. He's called us to be the people who point people to that decision that they need to make. It's an exciting time to be a child of God. Yes, our world is changing. It's not like it used to be. But more than ever, the world needs the church of Jesus Christ. Loving God and loving her neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We thank you that you cared enough to warn us that there would be wolves and that we would be sheep living in a wolf's world. Father, we, we just ask that we would experience the filling of your spirit and that we would sense the boldness that you gave to your disciples in the first century. Father, we just pray that as this church is in this community, pray that it would be salt and light in a world that's growing more and more hostile towards you and your son. And Lord, as this church has sent out your servants around the world, we do pray, Lord, that they would be faithful servants. Give them boldness, give them courage, Lord. And uh, we thank you that we have a part in what you're doing as you do bring this history of this world to a close. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.